this is The Sun Also Rises on KPCG-FM. I'm Jeremiah Jacques. In our era, it seems like it's almost always the innovators who receive the, the bulk of reward and recognition. You see that if you look at Silicon Valley, you see it on Wall Street and in all kinds of other places. Innovation is exciting, and, and I think that that recognition is warranted. But what about those who restore and rebuild? What about the individuals who devote their lives to efforts to recover and regrow and rehabilitate? In today's episode, we're going to turn the spotlight on a few people who have achieved remarkable accomplishments, not so much with innovation, but by fixing something that went wrong. Act 1, Return of the Rhinos. When Jadav Payeng was 16 years old, he was confronted by a problem quite unlike the problems that most teenagers face. Jadav lived on the largest river island in the world. It's Majuli Island on the Brahmaputra River there in northeast India. And for several years, abnormal monsoon flooding had been bombarding the eastern side of the island. The floodwaters were rapidly eroding the landmass and just stripping all the vegetation away from the land that remained. Jadev looked at the vast, barren, sandy wasteland where lush forest had once stood, and he decided that he would devote his time and attention to trying to restore it and to attempting to reforest it. So he planted a little sapling in the sand. That was back in 1979, and just about every day since then, Jadev Payang has continued planting trees, spreading seeds, and nurturing the forest on Majuli Island. During the first few years of his labor, the main challenge that Jadev faced was finding enough seeds and saplings. He would have to canoe across the Brahmaputra to the mainland and collect a bunch of plants and then load those plants with their roots into his canoe and then carefully transport them back to Majuli. It was slow and difficult work. But after a few years passed, many of his trees began maturing. And these mature trees started to provide the seeds and the saplings that he needed to keep on expanding the forest. So all those canoe trips were no longer necessary, and the work began to go much faster. I was able to get in contact with Jadev Payeng when I heard about his forest, and I asked him a few questions about it. And he said that his planting and restoration has been successful mainly because he collaborates carefully with the land's natural healing ability. He said, quote, The major contributor in making this forest is the nature itself. I only catalyze the process. End quote. Another really difficult part of the reforestation project is watering plants over such a large area. To accomplish this, Jadev devised a very simple but effective drip irrigation system. So he does use some innovation. He makes clay pots and he fills the pots with water and then he uses bamboo poles to hang these pots up above the young saplings. 
Then he drills tiny holes in the pots so that just a little bit of water can gradually trickle out of them and fall onto the young plants. And then over a period of days or weeks, the pots empty onto the saplings, and then Jadev refills the pots with river water. And he repeats this process again and again until the trees grow large enough to be able to obtain all the water they need with their their uh, root structure. In our interview, Jadev told me, quote, It's not just about planting saplings, but protecting them for the initial years till the sapling becomes self-sufficient. Later, the nature will take care of itself. End quote. Experts estimate that Jadev Payeng has planted more than 100,000 trees so far. Single-handedly, he's transformed almost 1,400 acres of wasteland into bustling forest ecosystem. That's an area almost twice the size of Central Park, so it's, a, it's an amazing amount of land. As a result of Jadev's efforts, this huge piece of land that was barren and pretty much devoid of life is now a lush forest. His forest is home to over 100 species of trees and plants. There are arjun and cotton trees. There's tall elephant grass. There's uh, mango and banana trees. There's also jamun and jackfruit and many acres of bamboo. And a diverse array of animals has also returned to the region now that it's been restored. Deer have moved into the forest. It's also home to tigers, apes, buffalo, wild boars, monkeys, and all kinds of birds and reptiles, amphibians, and insects. They've all made Jadev's forest their home. And a herd of more than 100 elephants has also recently started to live in his forest for about six months out of each year. Since those elephant visits began, they've given birth to more than 10 calves in Jadev's forest. But the animal reappearance that delighted Jadev the most was the one-horned rhinoceros. This is a threatened species now, and when they showed up in Jadev's forest, he was overjoyed. He said, quote, When I saw that even rhinos liked this habitat and visit it every year, it surely excites me. Jadev said that the most challenging part of his work has been working as one man with little resources. If more people had been working with him over the years, he says they could have covered all of India with a restored and healthy environment by now. But it's been just him, so the project has been pretty slow moving. Earlier this year, the Indian government awarded Jadev the Padma Shri. That's one of the highest civilian honors in the country. And the Indian government also named the forest that Jadev grew after him. And they conferred upon him the title, Forest Man of India. If you'd like to see some of the photos of Jadev's forest and to read our article about his remarkable story, just go to thetrumpet.com and search for The Man Who Grew His Own Forest. And it should come up there. Act 2, written and presented by Whitney Kelsey, is called The Vow of a Six-Year-Old Boy. 
Paul Rokic was born on the surface of the moon. Or so it would seem if you viewed the Ochre Mountains in his hometown of Smelter Camp, Utah. By the 1930s, his once lush land had been raped of vegetation and wildlife by decades of copper mining operations. Though Paul lived in a wasteland, he dreamed of greener things. He dreamed of trees with branches low enough for his boyish limbs to climb and plush grass to cushion his falls. When he was only six years old, Rokic made an extraordinary vow. He determined that he would somehow restore the decimated lands to their fertile glory. This was not an easy task. At the time he made his vow, Paul was already earning money for his family by scrubbing onions at a local grocery store. When he was 13, his father died of pneumonia. He then had to take a night job after school to help support his mother while his three older brothers went off to war. Yet, through those tough years, he never forgot his dream. Years later, Rokic returned to the area and paid a visit to the smelter office. He asked, did they have any plans to replant the trees? No, was the emphatic reply. Would they let him try to bring the trees back? Again, another no. The dream would have died if Paul Rokic were a lesser man, but he realized he needed more knowledge if he was going to be taken seriously. So, Paul went to the University of Utah to study botany. Unfortunately, he only encountered more naysayers. When he shared his dream with his professors, they scoffed. The lands, they said, were too eroded to reclaim. There were no birds or squirrels to spread the seeds, and it was sure to take 30 years for his original seeds to produce seeds of their own. The experts estimated it would take 20,000 years to revegetate the wasteland. He should abandon his dream, they advised. He didn't want to waste his life on such a hopeless endeavor. Yet, Paul set out to prove them wrong. With a backpack full of seedlings flung over his shoulder, Paul crept out of his house under the cover of darkness and began to plant life on the ochres. For seven hours he hiked and planted seedlings. He became a man obsessed, and night after night for 15 years Paul planted his seeds in hope. Rokic financed his mission from his modest earnings as a construction worker. But when funds were low, he borrowed money from relatives and begged donations from seed companies. Once, when the family was down to only $10, one of his sons fell sick. Paul spent $5 on his son's medicine, and the other $5 he spent on seeds. Other oppositions presented themselves. Frigid winds and sweltering heat, landslides and floods obliterated Paul's work again and again. Once a highway crew came and took tons of dirt for a road grade, they uprooted all the tender shoots he had planted in that area. And when he lost a whole valley of fir seedlings to a fire set by a careless sheep herder, Rokich broke down in tears. But then he dried his eyes and kept planting. And then, little by little, year after year, Paul's efforts took root and grew. He watched in wonder as the emerald shoots that sprang from the tar-black earth began to spread and reach for the sky. Soon, the gophers appeared, and then the rabbits came back, followed closely by the porcupines. 
Finally, after years of turning a blind eye to Paul's covert operation, the Kennecott Copper Corporation hired Rokich to continue his work in an official capacity. They provided him with the heavy machinery and crews needed to complete the beautification of the area. And because of one man's vision and tenacity, this once thirsty desert was transformed into a lush garden of Eden. Although it took him until his hair turned white, Paul personally planted 60,000 trees and 20,000 acres of grass in an area now replete with elk and fragrant flowers. A vision that started with a little six-year-old boy became a breathtaking reality because of one man. One man who wouldn't give heed to doubts, but just kept planting. An individual who smiled at opposition and setbacks and kept planting. Paul Rokich saw what looked like a barren moonscape, but unlike countless others, he dared to imagine a lush forest teeming with life. Act 3, 99 Miles Back in the year 2000, an Indian man named Balbir Singh Sichuwal took a look at a river near where he lived, called the Kalibian River, that's in India's Punjab region. And historically, the Kalibian had been beautiful and pristine and had, you know, great quantities of water flowing through it. But when Mr. Sichuwal took a look at it in the year 2000, he saw that this river was almost dead. All kinds of industrial waste and domestic waste had been dumped into it for years and years. There were six towns and about 40 villages that were discharging their sewer water into it. And all of that pollution was killing the Calibian River. Long stretches of it had been reduced to just a sludge of thick filth. Some parts were dried up altogether. Farms all along the river were struggling because of the severe water shortages. And the Kalibian's poisoned water was also seeping underground, contaminating groundwater reservoirs. And that was causing some terrible and, and lethal diseases among some of the Punjab people. It was a tragic mess. And Mr. Sichuwal wasn't able to get the government there in Punjab to take action to clean up the river. So he decided that he would devote his life to it. Mr. Sichuwal was 35 years old at this time, and he knew that it was more than he could accomplish on his own. So he began to enlist a team of volunteers to help him. He traveled up and down the river to the villages that were suffering because of the Calibian's toxic condition. And he taught classes to the people about the vital need to clean the Calibian up and to stop polluting it. And many of the people responded. As a result of his classes, people from about 25 different villages volunteered to help Mr. Sichuwal. They started raising money. They started buying tools and all kinds of cleaning equipment. And then they jumped into the river and started working. During the first few weeks, Mr. Sichuwal and his team used their bare hands to start clearing garbage and pulling weeds from the the sludgy riverbed. They cleared out silt and filth and hyacinth that was growing in there. And pretty soon, the word started to spread through the villages. And lots of children began joining in the work. 
locals who at first were indifferent about the project started to get pretty excited about it. They could see progress. They could see that Mr. Situal was starting to accomplish something pretty remarkable. Some of these locals began to offer their labor and their tractors to the restoration project. Mr. Situal was always on the front lines of the battle, either down in the water pulling out trash or organizing work for others, or up behind the wheel of a tractor hauling refuse away. He launched a region-wide public awareness campaign to tell villagers how to dispose of waste with traditional methods instead of dumping it into the Calibien. As the years went by, Mr. Situal's team kept cleaning and cleaning, and they cleaned up all 99 miles of the Calibian River. And as the riverbed was cleared in a given area, the natural springs there would revive, and the water would rise, and the river would fill up. And their work didn't stop with cleaning inside the riverbed. They also built embankments and brick sidewalks beside long stretches of the river. They built bathing gots, they planted fruit trees and flowering plants and trees along the banks. For 99 miles, they restored a sludgy trickle of filth and garbage to a clean and beautiful river. The challenge wasn't over, though. Some of the local villages along the Calibien kept on dumping their waste and trash into the river. So Mr. Situal petitioned the government to take some kind of action against this and to plug up the sewage inlets that were draining into the Calibien. But there was little response. So once again, he decided to take action himself. He mobilized his team of volunteers to come up with an underground sewerage system. This meant laying miles of underground sewer pipes from these villages to the river and engineering a kind of natural treatment system that filters the sewage through a layer of trenches to clean it. The government in Punjab finally ended up getting behind this initiative and helped to make it a region-wide success. This low-cost model treats sewage water in a way that makes it usable for irrigation and agriculture. Mr. Situal's model of community-based river restoration was so successful that last year, in 2016, India's central government ended up seeking him out to bring that same model to the mighty river Ganges. A report from the Tribune India says, quote, the Situal model, which has rejuvenated the 160-kilometer, or 99-mile, Kalibian River, will now help the central government clean the Ganges. The government has reached an agreement for an integrated approach which will strive for Situal's model to rejuvenate the Ganges with the help of people's participation in rural areas of the states through which the Ganges passes. And really, that's the key to Mr. Situel's success, getting local people on board to participate. He's had great success because he's been able to inspire locals to see his vision. And then he's able to mobilize them to work, to restore the areas they live in to health and beauty. In that Tribune India article, Mr. Situel was quoted as saying, Everything is possible 
with the help of the supporting public. Act four, the city of murals. This final segment is written and presented by Marie Tallis. Highways, underground railway lines, building fronts, church walls, billboards. These are the unremarkable, insignificant, and forgotten locations that for the past two decades have slowly been transforming under Jane Golden, director of the Mural Arts Program in Philadelphia. Jane's parents, Gloria and Stanford Golden, describe her as adventurous and driven, even from a young age. While growing up in Margate, New Jersey, she entered a boardwork art show at age 10 and won first prize for her watercolour landscapes. She later went on to obtain her Master's in Fine Arts from Mason Gross School of Arts at the State University of New Jersey. She was also a double major in Fine Art and Political Science at Stanford University. After graduating, she moved to LA where she discovered the Mural Arts Program. Everywhere she went, she encountered glorious murals in the streets. All the professors were telling her to do the safe thing. Don't go to law school, get a boring job, and then later on get a studio and paint. But one day she went home from her boring job and she realized that she was miserable and isolated. So she looked to the LA mural program. They had just been hiring, but she had passed the deadline. But not to give up, she walked around her neighborhood in Santa Monica until she found a wall. She knocked on the door and she asked to paint a mural. She called them every single day for a month until they finally gave her a grant for only $300. She had never even painted a mural before, but she would eventually become the co-founder and director of the Los Angeles Public Art Foundation. But in 1985, Jane began to notice some worrying signs. Her hands would grow stiff. She developed sores and fevers, and she constantly felt drained of energy. A severe bout of illness left her in the hospital with a butterfly-shaped face rash. The news wasn't good. Her doctor bluntly informed her she wasn't going to have a long life, and she was diagnosed with lupus, a chronic inflammatory disease that can be fatal when it affects the kidneys. Jane made the decision to return to her home to recover. But as she was recuperating, Jane found an article about a program called the Anti-Graffiti Network. Wilson Good, mayor of Philadelphia, wanted to clean up the city, and he wanted the kids who were writing on the walls to clean it up. And he knew that a lot of those kids really did like art. Itching to start again and get back out into the field, Jane sent her resume in and got the job. Marginalised communities were her main concern, because that's largely where a lot of graffiti artists helping her were coming from. She believed that the process of creating art was just as important as art itself, and through the program of mural arts, she has now seen firsthand how art is able to move and inspire people. The city had been trying to stem the growing problem of graffiti art during the 1970s and early 80s through the Anti-Graffiti Network. Golden saw much of the graffiti sprawled across the city had an underlying artistic value to it, and she reached out to the community to turn their illegal work into real, genuine creative art. Her first mural and challenge was the Spring Garden Street Bridge, but as the mural progressed, people often stopped to gaze in it in awe. Murals were an opportunity to channel the artistic talent of many of the gangs into a force for good. Thus began a program that not only produced beautiful public art, but would train thousands of artists through programs for painting, sculpture and metalwork. The program takes advantage of the many hundreds of hands in the communities, churches, businesses, juvenile delinquents and more to help create the thousands of murals that now adorn the Philadelphia streets. To date, there are over 3,600 murals in the city. It became obvious from the beginning that the art was making a difference. Whenever Jane and her crew would begin setting up a grid ready to paint, 
graffiti gangs would stay away. If a wall covered in graffiti was transformed into a mural, it stayed that way. As the program expanded, it wasn't only the walls, but even the lots that were changed. The trash was removed and the parks were installed. Jane always asked people in the community what they wanted. Many walls are specific to the desires of the people who actually live there, inspiring them every single day. But pain is her constant companion throughout the day. When she was diagnosed, Jane was far from home in Los Angeles, scared and frightened. A nurse who also suffered from lupus came and comforted her, telling her that if she stayed healthy, she could still accomplish a lot in life. And whenever the disease strikes her hard, Jane visits lupus clinics to keep in mind that it could be much worse. The disease also made it impossible for her to have children of her own, but through the mural arts program, Jane feels she has been able to care for thousands. Many kids' lives have been rerouted from the vicious cycle of crime because they had access to a program that could teach them to harness their artistic talents and career paths. Lupus only increases her intensity and her drive to transform the city of Philadelphia. She says that being told you won't live a long life makes you not waste a day. Her tenacity and never-say-die attitude is now reflected in a world-class mural arts program and an institution that continues to impact and change lives today and thousands of murals that brighten the streets of Philadelphia. Well, that's the show this week, everybody. We hope you've enjoyed seeing the spotlight shine a little bit on some remarkable individuals who devote their efforts to restoration and renewal. People who set an inspiring example of environmental stewardship and of regrowing and improving and cleaning up. If you have any questions or comments, please email The Sun Also Rises. Uh, you can email us by sending it to tsar at kpcg.fm. I'd like to thank Whitney Kelsey and Marie Tallis for their help with this episode. And we'll leave you this week with the words of the farmer and conservationist, Wendell Berry. Do unto those downstream as you would have those upstream do unto you. <laughs> <laughs>